to the Film Comment Podcast. We are at the Toronto Film Festival and we'll be doing a couple of podcasts from here. So let me introduce myself first. I'm Nick Rapold, Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and I'm very happy to be joined by... I'm Nick Davis. I'm a contributing editor at Film Comment and I teach uh, film studies and gender studies and English at Northwestern University in Chicago. And... And uh, I'm Adam Naiman. I'm a contributing editor at CinemaScope. Uh, I write for The Ringer and other publications and I have a New book out on the Coen brothers, who do not have a film at the Toronto International Film Festival. Yes, conspicuous absence. Yeah. And just by way of explanation, in case you hear some catchy tunes in the background, uh, we are in a space, I'll call it a space, undisclosed location where there happens to be a little music. But it is Saturday, so it's, you know, we can be festive. Yeah, absolutely. It's fair. But we have a lot to talk about. I mean, we're kind of, it's not quite a, a hump day in the festival yet at all i would say well for those of us who live here the hump day was like last wednesday because we've been watching things on the ground for <laughs> a, a long slow time decline. Okay, so this is the first saturday night of the festival and it's i mean for most people it's just barely started yeah yeah i mean what have been just in terms of high profile films i guess there has been what so far Oh, like the big galas? Yeah, the things big that galas. Have, that have dropped on all of just, us? I just want to give people stars to steer by. The Netflix uh, uh, Scottish Rebellion movie. Oh, the, starting Chris, right. Chris Pine and supposedly his, his genitalia. Okay. <laughs> There's the lead. Uh, what's, the, but, what's the title of that one? Out, Outlaw King. Outlaw King. Oh, yes, yeah. of course. Who can forget Outlaw King? It will be on the lips of our descendants for years to come. Years to come. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's one thing. I mean, I guess Thursday is usually like a can, can kind of festival cap, well, catch up day. All the can films press screened at the same time. Yeah, on Thursday. On Thursday. Mm. Like right now, as we're speaking, Widows is having its world premiere. The that's right. The the, the, the yes. Steve the, the Steve McQueen film Halloween is having its world premiere. Yes. Uh, at midnight. Midnight. At, at midnight tonight. Do any of us hope to attend? I, I hope to attend. One day. <laughs> One day in my life, probably yeah. not while I'm here. I think it's going to be really hard to see that film another time. It's never going to come out Halloween. It'll never be released theatrically. Wait, what no, do you I'm, mean? I'm, it's going to be. It's going to open in 2,000 theaters. So oh, oh see okay. it soon. Sarcasm. I've just met you. I'm learning the register <laughs> of your humor. We've got to learn yeah. the, the, the yeah. of sarcasm. Um, so I mean, what do, what do we like? What should we what should we begin with? Thoughts? I've, I've liked a lot so far. I think some of the things I've liked, I did not go to Cannes or Venice, so um, I'm catching up on some of the things you will have talked about before, but um, Graves, is that a name? Was that a Venice? It was not in competition, in Venice, but I think yeah, it was it there, was right? It was there, but I, I personally would love to hear about it, as I did not see it. So what I'd heard about Graves Without a Name, which is the new documentary by Raiti Pan, who made The Missing Picture five years ago and Rice People a long time before that, um, was that... It is. It lands emotionally. It tells a really dense story about the genocides in Cambodia, but without the sort of uh, frontal formal innovation that you get from the missing picture and without the sort of immediate affective claim of watching a bunch of clay models made from the soil in which people have been buried or bled are the storytelling mechanism. And that's true. This looks a little on the surface like um, maybe a more conventional documentary if, if we're having to imagine that as pejorative or in some way qualified praise. But I think it really sells the movie short. I think it's a fantastic movie. And, and one thing that I took away from it was that because there are so many monks, survivors, 
kids, visitors, Rai Tipan himself quite often, who it's not something the movie flags or foregrounds exactly, but who are engaged in so much modeling, paper cutting, um, designing of their own homes in ways they think might call people back or help ghosts find each other in places where they're hoping that they might. Um, the sheer will toward mimesis, representation, performance, um, mise-en-scene turns out to not just be one filmmaker's idea about how he could make that story audiovisual to us once. It turns out to seem like a kind of cultural preoccupation um, and that the whole mise-en-scene of the country from dirt to pageantry, everything in between, is all a way of reckoning with this history nobody's getting out of. And so beat to beat without maybe having a log line like Missing Picture does of what you're gonna see when you go to that movie, I thought it was stunning. Um, and just a, a landscape establishing shot or a close-up or a, a brief tilt down a what somebody's wearing teaches you a lot in that movie in addition to all the history you're getting. Oh, well now, now I feel all the worse that I haven't seen it. This is a fair amount of the festival, I would say. It's day three. It's you day know, three. the horizon leans forward. Yeah. Everybody can see everything it's now. true, but, but just this feeling that I, the, the, what is it, FOMO? Right. Yes, the FOMO. Fear of missing out. That's, that's definitely, I, I would say, in, in fair, full effect here, just because of the kind of glut of offerings. We're not as fortunate as, as Adam, who has secretly been able to see all sorts of things. Yeah, um, I mean, what I, I was just so eloquently described, I'm still thinking of some of the phrases you used to describe the Riti Pan film, distracting me as I'm trying to think of what to say about mine. Well, that's uh, nice. Well, what was? Thank you. Um, I would also choose a documentary, even before we started recording, when you and I were going back and forth for about 20 minutes, we were talking all about nonfiction features, which is a really nice refreshing thing to do. But uh, the Roberto Minervini film, what you can, what you're going to do when the world's on fire, yes. um, which I think in many ways quite extraordinary. I think it's a movie that will be a conversation piece, but it's because it lends itself to it. I think Minervini's work is very talk aboutable in a lot of ways. The question of, you know, an, an Italian born, you know, Houston based filmmaker going and then making movies about other places that he's not from. And there are movies that really are about the idea of being from a place or being mm. around a place or living in a place. And that's true of any number of other documentarians we can talk about even at this festival, like you were talking about Fred Wiseman before. And, mm. Um, Michael Moore, when he's not making stuff about Flint, is going to other places. So, I mean, that's sort of endemic to documentary filmmaking, but with... with um, and also to what Michael Moore does. And also to what Michael Moore does. Mm, yeah. That was very funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then, but, but I think with Minervini, the movies are so much about that sense of, of place and also about his being within them just in terms of being among the people and his cinematographer being there because he's so inside communities and community rituals. I don't think he claims them. I don't think he appropriates them. I don't think he claims to understand them. He doesn't unpack them. He doesn't deconstruct them. It's also too much of a cliche to say that he simply observes them because it's not factually true. There's a shaping that goes into his work. There's a kind of, and I'm not using this word negatively, but a kind of complicity and a kind of collaboration with subjects when it comes to making certain things seem dramatic. I mean, in this case, he uses this gleaming black and white cinematography, which is just unspeakable beautiful at times um, to deal with four narrative strands in various sort of southern American cities um, there's obviously stuff in New Orleans which is hard to miss because it sort of involves Mardi Gras ritual there's stuff in uh, Mississippi and 
there's a, a chapter with a, a group of new Black Panthers and sort of the question of what their militancy looks like when it's first unopposed, just in the form of community organizing, and then when it actually bumps up against cops. And so, you know, the problematic of it, which is the idea of someone telling a story from outside his own community or outside his own race in this case, sort of bumps up against just how... <laughs> how plangently it communicates the lives and feelings of the people that it's about. And it's filled with music and it's filled with expression and it's not remotely bleak or depressing except underneath those things it is and it's quite devastating. The same way that The Other Side, his film which Nick and I were talking about before, which is like one of the last pre-Trump zeitgeist movies. It, it's in the air in that movie, you, mm. you feel oh, yeah. it. And The Other Side had such a suggestive title which was suggesting here is a festival audience and here is the other side that you don't see. Mm -hmm. I would say what you're going to do when the world's on fire then becomes the other side of the other side. Because mm. in the other side, whiteness is the unifying characteristic of the characters, and to some extent, it's what they express in an angry, aggressive, somewhat right. confused, and in, in other ways, very proud way. Mm. And there's very few black people in the other side, except for the Obama effigies that, if you recall, are being pulverized. pulverized. Whereas in this film, whiteness barely exists, mm. except in the form of a couple of cops who you see masked towards the end of the movie. Right. So I think that, again, it's a, it's a conversation piece. There's a lot to say about it, but that doesn't also exclude the fact that just watching it aesthetically is pleasurable mm. and that experiencing it emotionally is quite powerful. Mm. And it's the sort of movie I can't imagine that any of the critics or colleagues that I've spoken to or people who are going to see it, like, it doesn't pass without comment. Mm. Like, this is a movie that you talk about. You mm. don't just be like, yeah, that's saw it. Yeah. So, I, and I can't wait for more people to see it. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it too. And I, I you know, I loved the other side and I, I found it, it was just kind of a, like a piece of magic in being so prescient uh, as it was. Uh, although at the time you didn't, I guess that's what prescience is about. But, and this one I, I also liked, I felt like it was um, less of a zeitgeist film um, because it, it does commit itself very much to one of, the, one of its subjects, which is a, a woman who runs a bar and has a, you know, terrible traumas in her past and, um, but is able to speak with, with such kind of like force and resilience about her experiences and to use a cliche about actors, is a force of nature uh, in the film. Um, and she's probably the best part about the movie for me. And I, I almost wish it didn't have the title it has. Uh, it's such a, I don't know, it's such a like, yeah, you know, burn down the house sort of title. Um, and, you know, she's a, a real forceful person. But it, it's not, when you see the title, you think it's going to be about something that's simmering in America and about to burst mm. into flames. But it's, for me, it's more of a, uh, you know, more of a character study that stays a character study more than the other side does. I mean, opens out a little, you know, they do have new Black Panthers in it. And, you know, her traumas are kind of systemic related, you know, systemic causes. But uh, it, it feels more grounded in a particular person's experience, which is kind of like what the first half of the other side was more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I hope no one goes into it with high expectations pegged in a certain way because of its title, because um, that would be unfair. 
I'm excited what you're both saying about it. And I bought my ticket for the last day of the festival in part oh. because I was just telling Adam, I saw The Other Side was my last of 40 movies at the festival in 2015. Oh, wow. And for that to be the last thing you see before you get back on the plane is, yeah. you, that takes a couple <laughs> days to get over. Definitely. Um, but it reminds me, and I'm beating a drum you've heard me beat before, but it reminds me of some conversation, not enough conversation at last year's TIFF about mm -hmm. life and nothing more, which was one of the oh, best yeah. movies I saw here last year by a Spanish filmmaker making a movie deeply immersed in African-American family life in Florida in that case. And the few people I, t and it is finally opening in October. It is. Um, and so it's part of the reason I'm putting in the plug again to hope people go find it. Um, but there was such, when I would describe it to people inevitably who had not seen it, I did hear a lot of versions of what is the investment of a Spanish filmmaker in African America. And it's clear how much work there still is to do to not localize identities of color or experiences that are associated with of color as though that um, contains them instead of entitling them to the same global stature um, interest anybody if you were looking around the world and thought whose lives maybe deserve some unpacking and some disclosure how would you not right. <laughs> settle on some of these communities yeah. Um, yeah which has come up for me a lot too and seeing a lot of indigenous work already here at yeah. the that's festival. what i was going to ask you i'm super eager to hear what you would say about edge of the knife because I haven't seen it yet. So yeah, the, the two um, films in that category I've seen so far are Edge of the Knife, um, which is the first hottest language movie. Um, and is in fact, I gather, why would I know this? But there are two <laughs> um, dialects of hottest and they're both featured in this film. I could not train my ear to know when we were moving back and forth between one and the other, although it's a plot point that one family is visiting from a different um, sort of area of the island um, when something terrible happens to all of them. That movie I liked a lot at the beginning, um, especially since I think there's so much pressure, whether self-imposed by artists, more often probably from external forces, to provide um, either maybe pre-set pre stories of everything that's working against these communities, which are important stories to tell, um, or a kind of idealized ethnography um, that sort of detaches people from history. This did not do either of those things um, for the first half hour, but it becomes this sort of bodily mortification saga, as if you even read in the blurb, something terrible happens, quote unquote, and somebody has to hide forever in the woods after that. And it wasn't just watching this person um, sort of flagellate and torture themselves, um, but the film adopts a style that's not one I've seen in a lot of indigenous filmmaking that's all but can see Adam Wingard from here. It was kind of um, just shot cuts, smash cuts, super loud Foley, everything we could do to, to kind of sensationalize somebody's downward spiral. That was not my favorite part of that film. but. Shook it up a little bit from what I was expecting. I'll give it that. Falls Around Her was a lot more interesting to me in a quieter film. Um, Tantu Cardinal, who people may know from Wind River, Dances with Wolves, oh. Legends of the Fall, all kinds of Canadian films. Um, Metis actress playing an Anishinaabe sort of Laurie Anderson figure in this who decides to give that all up and try to just move back to where she's from and finds that everybody who lives there is still having to kind of work out what it means to have her back and everybody whose livelihood depended on her public success is not ready to let her go yet and feels kind of like one of those John Sayles movies that is definitely about one person but there's a kind of rings of Saturn around it of 15 or 20 eloquently rendered people um, that was great John Sayles still my password to a lot of things
Anything that, any, anything that I, anything that I opened when I was like 15, when he really mattered to me. Yeah. There's still some things probably somewhere that can get into my stuff just by typing. Sales. Well, try to log into something tonight and I will. test your theory. We'll see what happens. Yeah. This is a, this is publicly broadcast podcast. It's okay. If know. that doesn't work, just type passion fish, but change the eyes to the, to a one. Well, it's where the Twitter handle bro from another comes from. I have a big oh, brother from another planet post. Oh, who am I talking to? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, just another girl on the IRT is my password, <laughs> is my Gmail password. So please don't log again. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't know you knew we called you that in college. I thought that was a behind your back kind of thing. <laughs> I knew. I appreciate it. Um, can I ask you about a film, Nick? Oh, please. Uh, it's a film that's on our, our little scribbled list and one that's probably worth getting into. And it's a film that I quite like. So in asking you about it, I'm not asking so that I can then disagree, but it's a movie that All has... Right, put your knives on the table. No, it's not. It's a movie I like a lot, but I'm that kidding. here I've heard some pushback against given its can reception, which is Burning. Burning. Yes. Which, and I'm bringing up this person in this tweet not to refute it, but it made me think because it's a critic I admire unreservedly, which is Girish Shambu. I had the same conversation with him. Girish is the best. And Girish had this tweet where he's like, I'm tired of these movies. about Not even that he's tired, but just this kind of male pathology study, like deep core male pathology, like the jealousy between the two guys and his issues with his father and his feelings for this girl is just like, it's not the movie's fault. But within film culture, we've just seen this a lot. And even if this is a superb articulation of it on a lot of levels, he's still fundamentally kind of tired by it. And I found that just to be an interesting thing to think about, not just with regards to burning, but in general, the kinds of movies, maybe not that get made, because there's infinite movies that get made, but the kinds of movies that get programmed and shown and how the critic toolkit at festival time really does rely on a lot of critical cliches about filmmaking cliches. Mm. It's almost as much of a cliche to say something as another coming of age film as it is for said film to be a coming of age film right. or uh, to call something a procedural is almost as cliched as that thing being a procedural and so I was wondering is it that the films lack the originality to sort of get our best effort or do we lack the language and the motivation sometimes to try and take these films and do something more with them than the path of least resistance mm -hmm. I mean burning's extraordinarily well done like you don't need another critic saying that everyone said it at Cannes and saying it now, I won't say it again. Like, it's really, really well done. But that question of why this is the kind of film that gets such good reviews and featured a lot, is it simply because it's well done? Mm -hmm. Or is there something about the kind of thriller that it is and the kind of literary aspects that it has that just makes it more of a top-of-mind movie for critics than films in other genres or... Or, or, or styles. It's, it's, it's kind of an abstract question, but I've thought of it since reading. Well, it is and it tweet. isn't because in a way you're saying are people just responding to it because they're kind of predisposed to yep. in a sort of narcissistic way to it. So it's not really an abstract question. But I mean, I, I think that um, I just didn't see it that way at all. And I guess that's what happens if, if you're blind to your own biases. But I don't think it's a bias because part of what I think is strong about the film is that everything's just around the bend. The next move is just around the bend. I find it hard taking that bird's eye view of it that it's just clearly, even when I, I hesitated to even call it a love triangle because it doesn't go into it that way. It's not like you're spending the film ping-ponging between these two people and wondering what's going to happen. I mean, it's it's it seem, it's almost more about a film but just these like... Well, the film is its title, right? Everything is simmering and yeah. just, you just feel so pressurized waiting for this spark to come in a lot of different right. directions too. Like, yeah. I, I mean, you hesitate to call it a love triangle. Like I hesitate to call it a thriller, but it kind of is. Yeah, it is. But you don't even know it is or will be necessarily. No. I mean, I, it, I mean, the, the kid's directionless. And so you're, you're just kind of watching him. What's the physics term when you're 
bobbing about the surface or something. Not Brownian motion or something. I Our don't know. knowledge of physics is extensive, <laughs> but I choose not to share it that's tonight. Good. That's good. Okay, keep that close. But Nick, you were going to say something. Well, I hesitate to call Burning a movie I haven't seen yet, but it's another treat <laughs> I saved for the 16th yeah. before we all go home. But, um, but this exact conversation had come up in my mind around Monsters and Men, which was a Sundance Award winner that was the first thing I saw here. Um, which even before I saw Girish, maybe like six hours after that, and we had this exchange um, about burning, did strike me as a movie that had staked out an ability to be um, about masculine crises and not just presume masculinity as the general field in which crises, of course, would play out, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I think that film well, maybe my comment is more about just the discursive context in which these films are now all going to arrive, that in all kinds of ways, people are more keyed up. I think it's a good thing to examine not just the gendered and sexual politics of the movies they're watching, but the ways in which we are watching them. And I think it, um, in some ways, that discussion, it's not that different from the Minervini discussion, right? If you're, if you're paradigm you're bringing into a movie is already to be suspicious totally based on who's telling this story do they have a right to tell that story again these are not questions i think people should not ask um but they can lead to slightly prefab responses um and i'm actually excited now in the same way i'm excited to see a film that actually tells me something self-critical or critical from the outside about whiteness that to be eloquent and surgical about masculinity um, is it really takes something that just filling your movie with men who have problems doesn't do. And um, it seems like the reaction you're describing to burning resonates with things I felt really strongly during Monsters and Men that in three strands of a movie managed every time, in part, I'll say, by making sure that it's kind of single scene women knocked their scenes out of the park and had really sharply written interventions that they did not feel accessory to that film. Um, but it's a difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, the movie I thought of this around too, which might seem like a weird one to jam in here, but I'm interested in it, is the Karen Kusama film, Destroyer. Because mm. Karen Kusama has had a fascinating career. You know, uh, starts out as a kind of indie director. She gets a big action project with Aeon Flux, which whatever you think of the film, like it didn't work and wasn't successful. And then she kind of, you know, she had Jennifer's Body, which some people I know rate very highly and thought got treated really poorly as a kind of subversive movie about femininity and, and horror. And she makes The Invitation, which she makes for very little and really engineers that into a pretty good scrappy little horror movie. All of which is to say that I watched Destroyer, in which Nicole Kidman plays this very weathered, beaten down LAPD cop who's tracking down an old rival. I mean, cliche after cliche. This is what I mean. It's a cliche for me to call this a cliche. Mm. It's procedural for me to call it a procedural. Like, it's leaning into those things. But it's hard for me to not see some of Karen Kusama in that personally, because this is just like someone who's who's kind of beaten down and mm. someone who's who's finding a way that she has to kind of express herself in a way that's somewhat impolitic or somewhat outside the bounds of, of good you know, cop behavior, mm. which is a cliche, except to have it with a female director and a female lead character leads to maybe 
a larger, more suggestive way to read it. Mm. And then I look at the filmmakers she's chasing in this movie and whether she catches up to them or not, it's thrilling to watch someone trying to photograph Los Angeles like Michael Mann and Heat. Mm. It's exciting to watch someone get inside the idea of being an undercover cop in these flashback sequences the way Catherine Bigelow does in Point Break. And I'm sure that some people listening to this, when they hear that this is Catherine Bigelow meets Michael Mann, they're salivating and saying, like, I really, really want to see this. Hit me. You know, hit me. <laughs> so the question of whether Kidman's performance, which involves a real deglamorization, like the question of whether that's a stunt or a really effective piece of casting, or the question of whether simply sticking a female star in a Dirty Harry type part is subversion or, or really easy. You know, like, I'm not sure. I wrote briefly about the film. I wouldn't even say that my review was positive. It wasn't negative. It was just somewhat intrigued because the big heavy, deterministic, metaphorical aspect of this movie, combined with this slick shooting style and the violence, is something that we're, and I hate usually the thought experiment argument of what if someone else's name was on a movie? It wouldn't mm. ever be. But, you know, if Michael Mann's name was on this movie or if Catherine Bigelow's name was on this movie, I wonder if its artfulness would find it elevated into the realm mm. of serious discussion. Whereas Karen Kusama, who even though I think she's close to 50, is just not seen as being on that level, seen as kind of cut below. I don't think she's going to get that benefit of the doubt. From, mm. from, from, from critics. I don't know if she's going to get that same benefit of the doubt, but there's some image making in this and some sequence making in this that I think is just really strong. I don't think it's a great script. I think it's 20 minutes too long, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, it's, it's, it's stuck with me. There's real kind of suggestiveness in this film. And yet it's also easy to say it's a procedural and it's cliched and it's mm. a cop movie and it borrows from here. I wonder if people are just going to talk about it at that level or if other people will be as slightly intrigued by it as I was. Mm. I was intrigued that London put it in their competition for their festival and mm. they keep their competition down to about 10 titles. Well, but it's in and... this competition here too because it's in platform. So for, for, readers sure. who, for listeners who don't know, TIFF's, TIFF doesn't have like a main competition with the biggest films like Cannes does, but it mm -hmm. has... Uh, it's one juried one section. juried thing of about 12 movies and a and platform if you will platform, platform named for will. named for Ja Janko yeah. uh, who was an original juror and his great masterpiece platform i think that so I, yeah it's interesting that it's in both of these these mm -hmm. competitions yeah well i have yet to see destroyer i i mean i i wonder if some of the concerns about the director's get director getting um credit is is it's a bit moot just because it seems it's 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 more of a Nicole Kidman movie yeah. in, in, in a general perception than anything else. So I'm, I'm embarrassed I'm failing to remember either the publication or the writer of a pretty in-depth Karen Kusama profile that hit maybe there two or three. There was one very recently, yeah. Yeah, maybe I was thinking of like two years ago maybe, maybe Circa Invitation, that, that yes. went so deep on the version of Eon Flux that nobody ever got to see. And um, it's... Right been exciting to see that it's possible to turn some perceptions around on someone based on artifacts that have been withheld from us mm -hmm. and that there does seem to be some enthusiasm that I I wish I could remember the person's name because it feels like they really created a context in which people could not only judge her based on the mixed receptions and, and, that and, you're describing. And coming out of that, this feels like her shot. Yeah. Like maybe not her only shot, hopefully not a last shot, whether it hits the target or not, you know, commercially, I don't know. But like, this is the shot you take yeah. when you have the chance. Yeah. Nicole Kidman's a big star and this is a, it's a biggish feeling movie. Yeah. You know, mm. it, I'm excited for it. Yeah. Yeah. So next up we could talk about 
I'll plug another one that I think is not on the radar in the same ways as some of the ones we've yes. talked about. Um, it felt I, like a discovery. Yeah, I, I, I just want to jump in and say that I, I appreciate that because Toronto is such a big tent <laughs> that yeah. a lot of things can be a lot of things can be lost. Oh yeah, in, for in sure. And I, for that reason, often spend most of this festival seeing like indigenous cinema, for example, which I can't think of another major world festival that even bothers to showcase it or Middle Eastern films. I see a lot of here because they are never 99 times out of a hundred going to show up even in rep houses in the States anyway. So it's become my kind of preferred beat up here. But one film that's neither of those things, it was a Swedish sci-fi movie called Aniara. Um, I saw it first thing yesterday. A-N-I-A-R-A for everybody taking notes. And it's based on a Harry Martinson novel. I'd never heard of Harry Martinson. He's won the Nobel Prize in Literature. So my bad. I I claim to have this PhD in English. But you'll recognize it's kind of cognate films right away. It's about a space mission to Mars as the world is burning up. All the end credits in the movie play first over a montage of the apocalypse of what's happened to Earth. So that's all the end. And this uh, giant ship is taking people to Mars where they will relocate. There are competing visions of whether they've managed to create a really sustainable and pleasant community in Mars or whether this is gonna be bleak as shit, but this is at least somewhere we can survive. Um, Our main character is a woman whose job is to run the room on this spaceship where you can go and where um, sort of plant your head down in this massage foam circle and the, the, Machine above you will remind you of your most pleasant and immersive memories of Earth. So it's the so, so it's the Solaris machine. It's the Solaris machine plucked into the spaceship from the second half of Wally. Yeah. <laughs> and more and more people, as they're having more and more doubts about how well is this going to go when we get there, are showing up in her room to experience the Earth that isn't even the one they have just left. Um, but then they find out quite early in the voyage that to dodge some space debris, they have had to go off track and eject all their fuel. And they are never going to get anywhere. Um, well, they might get somewhere in three years. They might be able to pull a gravity and slingshot themselves back. But the one astronomer we know on the ship is already telling everybody that's actually not going to happen. So this is just a bridge to nowhere. And um, watching everybody on the ship grapple with how they're going to admit that knowledge or not and what the society on the ship is going to look like, especially a ship that more like Wally than Solaris has been so constructed to capitalist purposes of making you as comfortable as possible and not interfere with your life as a consumer. Um, So it's also kind of the Dawn of the Dead mall in space. And, um, And so people's survival instincts have as much to do with what perception do I need to create around me as they do, how do I actually stay alive? So our gal's working real hard to come up with a dream screen you can see out the window that will still make you feel like you're in a rainforest instead of asking metaphysical questions about who are we. I really liked it. There were a lot of walkouts, but I've noticed there've been a lot of walkouts at everything at this festival. And it's my first time having applied for a press badge because I really like the public audiences here and I'd never wanted to leave them. So I don't know if lots of walkouts are just endemic to this new way I'm seeing the festival. But those of us who stuck in it felt really moved and I hope it gets a life outside this event. Yeah, it, 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 is, it can be unnerving when you realize that other people are on another planet, as it were, yeah. even if they're in the same room. I saw someone on Tinder during burning. <laughs> That's I, true. I know. That, that may be a point in Girish's column, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. That's yeah. That's the most trenchant criticism yet. Well, maybe. I mean, I'm 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 trying to think of something. They should have called Tinder burning. They should have called Tinder burning. <laughs> that would have been the best name. I, I'm I'm I, again. You're just so eloquently described the 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 Swedish movie. I'm trying to think of something that's similarly kind of off radar that I can do justice to. But then it's also hard, and you know, there's like infinite ways to talk about what it's like to be at a festival. But it also depends on your beat, right? So you know, I know for for some people they've gotten up and seen Stars Born or Vox Lux or tomorrow morning widows because it's kind of what you have to see and what you you know what you have to write about and that can account sometimes in these screenings for why people walk out right because mm-hmm. if it's not something that they can write about or if they're a distributor right. it's not something that they're going to buy it's kind of mercenary. That, that's why they're, they're going to go and it's kind of mercenary there were some people walked out of the Godard film today which is not an invitation to talk about it because I don't know what I would say about it but like some people walked out of image book today because I think they just were baffled and others walked out because they had a 40 minute slot and just wanted to check it out before yeah. something else was was starting so it's hard to read too much into that behavior yeah. but it is also true that you know, the kind of film that you're describing is one that people don't make a lot of space for on their schedules because there's certain mm-hmm. things you have to you have to hit you yeah. know and and there's a couple of them that might be worth talking about because I know Nick's seen them which maybe are not like huge mainstream but they're movies that critics see and don't walk out of like the SAS and the and the Mike Lee, these like long time filmmakers who have huge bodies of work and you kind of have to see them mm-hmm. and, and weigh in on them. So appointment viewing. Yeah, it's true. Viewing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although not not to contradict you, but I I would like to hear the Michael Moore movie if if you were to Sure. Seen it. Am I the yeah. only one who's seen it or I think so? I have not. I have not seen it, yeah. Well, well speaking, And then and then we'll go right immediately well, speaking of appointment viewing. Post haste to, yeah. to SAI and uh so the thing with Moore is, for me, uh, one of the things I do on the side is I teach. And I teach a doc class at Ryerson here in Toronto. And I use Moore as an example, not of what not to do, because it's not a production class, but like it's an example of like, these are not good things. In, in, in a <laughs> when couple to of, feel bad. When to, <laughs> well, in a couple of cases, like the scene in Bowling for Columbine, which Nick and I were talking about before this, where he leaves the photo of the... The, the deceased child at Charlton Heston's house or certain cuts he makes in Roger and Me or the entirety of some of his lesser movies is just things that I think go against a kind of documentary principle and are also just quite annoying. So I'm the most surprised person that in Fahrenheit 11.9, I found passages that I thought were strong and on point. Um, I was saying to Nick before, it may be that Trump is a good target for him. That sort of like Michael Mann, Manhunter thing of like, you, you didn't do, you son of a bitch. You know, like there's a right. fundamental understanding of the target because there's a shared maybe megalomania or media savvy. And he touches on that himself. There's these scenes early on where he talks about when he's met Trump and been on TV with him and this amazing footage of him and Trump and Roseanne Barr, you know, on Roseanne's daytime Yahtzee. talk show, <laughs> on Roseanne's daytime talk show, kind of like in a hotel lounge and Moore castigating himself for not going after Trump and making nice. But of course, whenever Michael Moore castigates himself, it's still somewhat narcissistic and self-serving because he is just a creature of self-presentation. He's self-deprecating, but in a really proud way. You know, he's self, uh, he's, he's, he's self-critical in a way that ultimately lets him get in the last word. But in this film, because passages of it deal with the water crisis in Flint. There's a full circleness that comes back to Roger and me. As flawed as Roger and me is, I think it's animated positively by his real concern 
in between the grandstanding. Mm -hmm. And so there's real concern in this. And the other thing, which again, and when I've described this to some people, I won't say who, but there's a fellow critic, again, someone I really like, when I was telling them what I'm about to tell you, he was just like making faces like he was being gutted. He's like, I don't want to see this film. But I was telling him that in this film, what Moore is doing is he's suggesting that Trump outflanked the Democrats on the left and that where the movie really goes hard is it goes hard at aspects of the Democratic establishment, including Obama at the top and also Nancy Pelosi. And also, you know, it has a very kind of Bernie would have won, not even subtext. There's like a Bernie would have won stretch, you know, and uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez sort of features in as a major character. The Parkland kids feature in as a major character. So Nick, who, uh, the other Nick who hasn't even seen the, the film, analyzed it really well when we were talking before. We were like, Moore's just dancing to keep up, right? You know, like, you know, previous to this, he was saying that Clinton and Trump were the same, and now he's literally comparing Trump to Hitler. And like, this is Moore's lack of attention span and lack of rigor. There's also something a little embarrassing, seeing him hanging out with the Parkland survivors in their like undisclosed location, like reading Twitter with them and stuff. Not embarrassing for the kids, but that Moore just wants to be liked, and he wants to feel like an eternal teenager, or he wants to feel like an eternal you know, juvenile, uh, you know, punching up and all that. Mm. But there's something maybe that our brains have just become so broken by where we are and what we're living in that Moore's lack of rigor and his lack of attention and just his juvenilia, like playing the omen over Trump's inauguration, score over Trump's inauguration and stuff, it kind of got to me. I didn't feel good about enjoying it. I didn't feel good about being somewhat connected to and moved by passages of this very, very sloppy movie. But I was. And without naming names, most of the people I saw it with felt the same, whether they'll cop to it when they end up writing about it. In some ways, I think it's more of a challenge now for critics to pick out those things that make more a master of his particular form and give them their due than it is to call it what's bad about what he does, because what's bad about what he does is very obvious. Like he is the anti-Wiseman, or in the context of this festival, in all senses, in all senses <laughs> the anti-Minervini mm -hmm. or the anti-Ritipan, you know, mm -hmm. like he's bad news. But much like Tarantino, who awarded him a Palm d'Or, uh, you know, he, his influence and the fact that he has a lot to answer for in terms of what's happened to documentary, that can't happen if you're not dealing with a major talent. Mm -hmm. And I'm a believer that the filmmakers that are most worth going in on, in the same way that often the filmmakers most worth praising and explicating at length are the ones who clearly cast a shadow. Like the filmmakers who are worth actually attacking or criticizing are ones who are talented, masters influential. and influential who've changed the form that they work in. Mm -hmm. If Michael Moore hadn't done that, then there'd be no point in using him as a negative example of some of the things that have happened to documentary film. Yeah. But in a more bite-sized soundbite way, I would say this is one of his better movies in a while. It feels good even if it doesn't deserve to to some extent laugh and react to this. But it may just be that in a debased media culture, like what's the line, the one in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is kind of king. <laughs> like he remains a very one-eyed filmmaker and yeah. it's a very blinkered movie, but it kind of felt okay to watch it. Mm. Um, and I'm surprised to hear myself say that. Well, we won't tell anybody. No. <laughs> is this thing on? Is this thing on? Yeah. No, no. Jesus Christ. No, no, no. Well, no. the yeah. one way in which you've convinced me against all my expectations that I might want to see it is that 
I'm sorry. Like, if you don't like it, please don't blame well, me. Well, you will pay for my ticket. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> is that what I have found especially galling about his last few, having really admired him with the caveats you've you know yeah. nodded to in the past, is that I did, around Roger and me, even up through bowling for Columbine, I did feel like he went into the field not having decided everything he thought. And... Even in Bowling for Columbine, I know what he thinks about guns mostly, but I do think he's actually listening to the people that he talks to, hoping that they might say things that resonate with what he thinks. But it's been almost you know 15 years now that I think he's already made the movie in his head and then goes and finds people whose square peg will fit his square conception. And for all the reasons you've just described, it would be hard to be anybody, including him right now, having already come to terms with what you think. <laughs> about right now so if it's just inevitable that like all of us he's kind of caught with his pants down having no idea how to build a frame around what we're all living through that may actually be kind of i can see where that would release something in him that i've missed a little bit yeah and and you know it, it does release something in him and it it's also Again, being in that theater is fascinating because it's a press screening. I didn't see it at a public. The public was the night mm. before. And, you know, again, he's handing out resistance, red resistance kerchiefs. And again, my stomach turns or my heart sinks or whatever. But in that room, I mean, he's it's preaching to the converted, right? That's mm. one of the big complaints about Moore from the few conservative film critics that there are with the platform. They're like, you know, he's not trying to change anyone's mind. He's sort of just trying to reinforce people's perspective, yeah. which is why watching it in a press screening room full of, I mean, let's just be honest, like largely liberal, left-leaning people who are happy to see Trump kind of attacked. When he makes criticisms of Obama, mm. whether it's criticisms of Obama's connection to, to Clinton or criticisms of Obama's own visit to Flint, or even just suggesting that Obama's presidency is part of a line of presidencies, including Clinton with mass incarceration mm. um, that led the way to Trump, the air kind of went out of the press screening room a bit. Mm. I'm not suggesting that it is the height of documentary filmmaking or political discourse to be like, I don't like Barack Obama. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not even saying I necessarily agree. But the fact that he can still kind of do that mm. and kind of confront his ideal audience a little bit mm -hmm. with something that will bother them yeah. or still confront them a little bit with something that they do not see coming. I felt it. Like, I'm not making mm. it up. Like, I felt it in the room while watching it. People were like, huh, he went there mm -hmm. whether he goes there well or whether that's a place to go god knows we shouldn't talk about politics nope there should be no political podcast but you know um uh it it i felt it yeah it was fascinating hmm. well that's another one that's yet to come for me personally but i i will see that i will see more can you, can you can you talk about peterloo i want to hear about peterloo peterloo um speaking of politics and anger and um yeah i mean Peter people named michael Michael. Michael, right? I don't know. I had a reflex to defend it just because I. It's like a deeply un, un, unfashionable movie, um, and but I'm okay if 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 he's trying to bring this back into fashion a little. I mean, it's in in, in a way, it's a movie. If you were, you know, in say in the '60s or '70s, when people were debating about, you know, what a political piece of filmmaking would look like, how do you depict a collective action? How do you depict a you know, d democracy in action, uh, how does the form reflect that or not? Um, in a way, this is, I don't think he was trying to do this, but it's just its just a result of how he's tackling the subject. It might look like something like this film. Uh, it's about the 1819 massacre that, you know, there was a 
protest for widening suffrage or the franchise, I guess as they say, um, in, in Manchester. So you had a peaceable, peaceful protest um, that was quashed by, you know, um, cavalry, government, you know, government uh, military uh, forces uh, at the behest of, you know, various nefarious magistrates uh, and, and, you know, the crown. So that's that's the subject, and the movie's about the mostly about the run up to that, and a lot about the run up to that, and that's part of what impresses me actually is that, um, I mean, the movie I thought of was Lincoln, basically, which is the, huh. you know a movie showing you the you know the sometimes unsavory work of persuasion, uh, legwork, legwork exactly right, the shoe leather um, shoe leather work, uh, and in this case that means really convincing a lot of working class, uh, you know, uh, laborers from, from, you know, textile manufacturing that they could actually get together and, and try to convince people en masse that, that the state of affairs is, is unjust. Yeah. Even just to, to think that it, you could think that. Um, so, so that's a lot of what the, this is a, I want to say two and a half hour movie, two and a half hours. And I would say a solid two hours is, is basically that. Uh, you know, and the consisting of a lot of speeches, you know, of different types. Uh, you have speeches by different kinds of radicals. You have speeches by uh, by a woman's association. Uh, and you see the divisions within the movement and the gradations within. Yes, exactly. And, you know, that all is a, is a slow march toward the actual march into a square, which is this, you know, then leads to this cent this climactic set piece of half an hour of the, the really uncomfortable it's like it's like the kind of tub slowly warming up you're just watching them like turn up the temperature on this square full of people uh, until finally you know the, the cavalry and, and you might think I'm being glib but I'm not even though I don't like the film did has anyone mentioned heaven's gate and I don't mean that it's a flop and haha heaven's gate but right. that the length of it and also just that basic idea of like the government or the authority like brutalizing its own people in a way mm, yeah. made me think very much of heaven's gate and made me wonder huh. if, if lee was thinking of of heaven's gate as, as one of a few models along with the obvious ones that people have mentioned like people have said peter watkins and people have said ken loach and those make sense because they're close to home right but i thought a bit of heaven's gate that's interesting while while yeah. watching this yeah i mean yeah it it you know it, it could be wouldn't put it past him um <laughs> but uh i don't know i just i just like that he he was you know willing to commit to tedium that kind of steered him away from the you know fine-grained organic character portraits that that he's more known for although i think he still thinks he was doing that well but that's but the i don't think he but that's the that. thing i wanted to mention with yeah. the film because i mean it's easy for me to say i didn't like it which i didn't but more interesting to talk about some of what it actually does he's never had performances like this before in this broad declamatory style hmm. and i actually thought of kubrick only in so far as the bad guys and they are bad guys are so grotesque in manner mm. and affect and costuming and makeup by the end when you see the king it's like dune like this is like these are like the these are like the the, the emperors in dune they're like these pustule <laughs> laid or, or or ben wheatley's high rise like it's really really exaggerated and lee whatever you think of him pro or con his wonderful old films or later films he's never done that before 
I've never seen that. It's almost like tipage. It's almost like that old Soviet style of depicting like, you know, plutocrats or whatever. They're really, really, really overscaled villains in this movie. I thought at least at least they played that way to me. And that's how the audience was reacting to them when I saw the film. And that's how the colleagues I saw with were reacting. Like they, they at one point, there's a, a moment where the, right before the, the they, they unleash the cops, they kind of toast. And my friend leaned over to me and said the Simpsons line, like, gentlemen to evil, you know, that idea. And we're just wondering if that over-the-topness and that exaggeration and division is a workable strategy for Lee or mm. if it's something that he kind of just stumbles into because often he does have that fine-grained organic approach to character and he really doesn't overdo his people. And here I sort of thought this must be on purpose because these performances are kind of ridiculous. For me, I wonder if if it struck you that way. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, I I interviewed him and he had a good line about like, you know, the king or the prince regent rather is looks totally outrageous, but some people are. And I think in the context of the situation, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it's like Well that, that could have yeah. played more in Trump too though. Right? Um yeah, some people I mean, are are outrageous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, and 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 I think in that case, the the Prince Regent, in terms of his total remove from anything about the lived experience yeah. of of these people, is outrageous. I mean, aristocrats, I did wear makeup, you know, and um, and I don't think he claims to a naturalism in in this film at all. Um, so he has a certain license for that. The magistrates, they are pretty villainous. Um, I mean, I think they're more portraits in grotesque portrait portraits in entitlement and um you know just complete judicial cruelty and in, in the form of like just whimsy and, and entitlement and mm. and they're and they're just like an expression of that to to a certain extent they they are in in miniature this the the kind of mob mob rule they just have to be smaller in number but they're still a mob you know um so yeah it's it's true you know they're not um, the only precedent in his work I could think of were the judges in Vera Drake, right? You know, who between the wigs and it being shot like Passion of Joan of Arc, like it's it's outside that realm of realism or yeah. naturalism, which he usually operates in very successfully, right? Um, yeah. No, it's more yeah, more of a more of just a question for you because I mean, it, it's it, whether it worked for me doesn't matter. It just felt different. I guess I'm looking mm -hmm. to see if you felt it was also different. I mean, you sort of said it was. So. No, I, I agree. I agree. It's different. I, I even think the structure's somewhat different. Yeah. To just, I mean, I think the structure was actually kind of radical to have this really long run up. And I don't, I don't even, you know, not spoiler alert, but I, I think the ending where he actually just drops the curtain. Is kind of is kind of radical. Like I don't think he even dwells on it in terms of the aftermath of the uh, of the the massacre. He just kind of ends it, and where he ends it, it just becomes, you know, in kind of retrospect, this really tragic portrait of of regular person's hope, um, colored by skepticism, just being completely dashed by 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 the reality and. And maybe you can say it's like a long way to get there. <laughs> maybe he had us walking laps before just finally turning off the road and going to where mm. he was going. But um, yeah, and and I, by no means would I say this is like one of my favorite of his, or or even that it's it's always an entirely satisfying experience. Um, I do think some of the things that people might have problems with have to do with the rhetoric of it. That it is repetitive. That it is um, a little, I don't know banal and declamatory because he is showing the work he wants us to get in like the dirt of just people 
giving speeches again and again and again and again. Um, that doesn't entirely excuse the way the working class family kind of talks like they're reading from a primer or something, you know, like, but I, I was, I was more happy with what it was kind of boldly doing to mm. get too, too frustrated with, with, you know, some of the other, the other aspects. But yeah, that's Peter Liu. Well, so uh, I think we've actually put in a good solid hour of opining, and I guess we can leave it there. Monrovia, Indiana, we'll also have to wait till, till Monday. Uh, but uh, thank you both for taking the time. Thank you for having yeah. us. All right. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>